Hello, New York City friends and On Being listeners. I'm thrilled to share that On Being Studios will be doing two events as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. I'll be recording a live episode of On Being with poet and MacArthur Genius Fellow Claudia Rankine on the evening of November 12th. And our executive producer, Lily Percy, will be speaking with comedian and writer Justin Sayer on the night of November 14th. That's for our fabulous new podcast, This Movie movie changed me. Join us for these two conversations. Buy tickets now at workitevents.com. That's workit, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with contemplative teacher Mirabai Bush. There is a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. That, was, that wasn't you, was it? Yeah, that's what I thought. Hello? Hello, hello? Hello. Is that Mirabai? It is Mirabai. Hi, it's Krista. Hi. I'm so glad you made it safely. I, did, I am too. I did not want to have any, any damage to you on my conscience. No, the roads were great okay. by, you know, by the time I got on them. Well, the I was, I've been on texting and on email with various friends in that area who were all kind of freaked out about the weather. Yeah, it's been a lot. Yeah, it's, we're weary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's it's a lot of what... shoveling and snow blowing. Yeah, somebody you know? said grumpy. I'm grumpy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Chris, or do you want us to just chit chat for a minute? All right. Yeah, sure. Um. So tell me something. Let's not. I don't want to. I'm so happy we're doing this. First of all, but I don't want to. I don't want to risk you saying anything profound. Until we're going. So tell me something mundane like what you had for breakfast. <laughs> what I had for breakfast? Yeah. Granola, yogurt, and banana. It was very good. Okay. Um, although I wanted something warm, but I couldn't figure that out. So right, you that's get, what I had for breakfast. You get a gold star for healthiness. <laughs> Last week I was out at Canyon Ranch. So, you know... One has to be healthy for a while after after that. That's <laughs> true. Well, I had a hip. I, lucky I had, you, though. Oh, was, was that fabulous. your award for having the? Yeah. Well, I went. There's one right near us in Lenox, Mass. And, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I went there to work with some folks to set up a program, you know, for re-strengthening. And uh, I've actually had a fabulous recovery. I feel great, but. Um, I wanted to keep strengthening. So, and basically, of course, they told me everything I already know. But <laughs> it was nice <laughs> to hear it from somebody else. Oh, I actually haven't been to Canyon Ranch. I mean, I've heard that it's really wonderful. Um, so it's one of my aspirations. Oh, my phone. My... Oh, okay. I'm doing it. Okay, Chris, do you think we're good? Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I do have wa- I do have water. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we don't do we have a hard stop or anything? 
cards stop at 2.30 our time, 3.30 your time. Okay. And is it okay if I drink water during the... Yeah, absolutely. And this is totally... This is can be nonlinear, and you can you know we can edit things out if you need if you want to stop or if you want to go back to something we'll edit it for broadcast. Okay. Yeah, it's just a real conversation. <clears throat> Nothing I would rather do. <laughs> okay, well, should we? Can we begin? Okay, terrific. Um, so I wonder, um, how would you start to talk about? Describe what the spiritual background of your childhood, of your life, your early life. Well, my early life, I was brought up Catholic, and um, when when I was seven, my father left, and my mother had to go to work. And this is right after the war. I have to say, the Second World War. <laughs> it used yeah. to be the war, right? And um, there wasn't daycare, so my mother would drop me off um, at the church, and I'd go to mass every morning, and then I'd just go right over to the school. They were mm-hmm. both across the street from us, so I was a in church every morning for my whole childhood. And, um, you know, there wasn't much to do there except um, try to pray, yeah. which I did. And uh, and I think that uh, somehow all those hours uh, opened something up for me that has been with me ever since, mm-hmm. um, a kind of, a kind of, Knowing that there are that maybe that we're here to pursue the big questions, hmm. because it was a kind of gothic church with high spires, and it had that effect that I think they're supposed to have of uplifting and you know taking your mind up into the upper reaches, and that's kind of what it was for me. I and as I think you know that. Catholic children are part of the way um, morals and ethics are taught is through the models of the saint, the lives of the saints. Right. And um, so there were a lot of really uh, pretty extraordinary and some preposterous stories of saints. Yeah. But I really loved um, Joan of Arc. Yeah, I read that. I read that. And <laughs> and I think it's it? such oh. an interesting idea that Joan of... And so I'm just wondering, how does Joan of Arc inspire the aspirations of a girl in Madison, New Jersey? <laughs> well, for one thing, her life was a lot more interesting than mine. So I, I, I liked that. But she did start out as a kind of ordinary little girl. And then, um, I mean, the basics are that she started hearing God talking to her and telling her what to do. And as a, as a little girl, you know, recognizing how confusing life is, I thought, wow, that would be so cool if you could hear what it was you were supposed to do. Yeah. And um, so, and then she, the other thing is that she did it. She did everything she heard, no matter how, <laughs> you know, right. how out there it was. So um, she saved France. She cross dressed and she saved France. Right. And, um, uh, but I, I loved that. And so, Somehow that stayed with me, that sense of 
wanting to be able to hear clearly what it was I should be doing with my life. And um, later, when I began to learn various contemplative spiritual practices, meditation, yoga, and so on, um, I realized that I was really... What I loved about it was that they help you get clear, calm, clear, open, better able to hear. It may, you know, it no longer seems to me like Joan experienced it as a great God in heaven speaking to her. But um, I feel like I've been able to hear better than what it is I'm supposed to be doing with my life Mm. and then, Mm. you know, doing it. Oh, that's that's really great, lovely language. Um, I mean, I do. You you have a you have a pretty amazing story of your own at this point. I have to say. I mean, you know, digging into all the things you did along the way, and um, I don't know. I mean, the Joan of Arc, uh, the Joan of Arc um, image is. It's is also kind of social, socially engaged. I would say, yeah, yes. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a quite dramatic way. Um, but so it's just you know, let's just get you. You ended up um, kind of rediscovering contemplative tradition. I think in in India. Um, yes, you got there though. It, it seems to me as a as a child of the '60s and kind of driven. Driven to be moving and and driven to search by your anguish at what was happening in the world, um, and you ended up kind of on this pilgrimage in 1969. Um, yes, and I think maybe later on you called it a pilgrimage. Maybe at the time, yeah, yes, didn't feel quite as uh, defined. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the time, I was in graduate school from 67 to 70. And um, those were the years that were mm-hmm. so there was so much upheaval on campus, and I got really involved in civil rights and then in anti-war work. You know, mm-hmm. I would you know drive war resistors across the Canadian border. I, but there were all kinds of you know marching in Washington and being tear gassed, and then uh, I was in the. English department, and there were extraordinary people, and um, it was a time when uh, people were beginning to, to uh, experiment with psychedelics yeah. and some uh, some spiritual practice, but not so much. But uh, the whole campus was just kind of turned upside down, and then the politics of it meant that uh, the police came onto campus, and it was yeah. it was getting impossible. So um, I left just before uh, I had done all the work for my PhD except my dissertation, and I decided to take some time off. And uh, I traveled overland um, with my partner then, and um, I traveled overland from London to Delhi. Uh, mm-hmm. All through that, that is like going backward in time. It was then before everything was so, you know, kind of globalized. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and it was amazing because uh, at that time, going through, you know, the former Yugoslavia and right. Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan into India, every place was completely peaceful, <laughs> and people everywhere took us into their homes mm. and. Um, 
we took a bus from from London to Delhi. It was the longest bus ride in the world. It was two two months, and uh, <laughs> wow! And it, yeah, and it cost like four hundred dollars. Right. And um, uh, <laughs> but it, then we stopped in lots of places and um, and got to know people all along the way, and also got to. Uh, have some experience of their spiritual and religious practices all mm-hmm. along the way. And uh, that was really opening for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I had never really experienced much of anything besides Christianity and Judaism before that. Um, and uh, then uh, I got to India, and I expected to stay for two weeks maybe in India. We were kind of, you know, searching for meaning. Yeah. And we were looking for it everywhere. And India was one of those places. But I got to India and um, I, the first week I was there, I heard about a course that um, uh, a Burmese Buddhist teacher was, was offering for Westerners for the first time. It was For the very first time, right? A, a yeah, very first time. For Westerners, yeah. And it was in Bodh Gaya where the Buddha was enlightened. Yeah. And, uh, and I did that course with many other people who are still my close friends. And um, Is it right that you, uh, I read somewhere that you, you heard about that, or at least in part, because you, you ran into Sharon Salzberg on the streets in I Delhi? I did. Yeah. We had been at the same school. Oh, you had, so you already knew her. No, we didn't know each other there, uh-huh. and so, but we'd heard of each other. Yeah, and um, so she was an undergraduate in American studies, and I was a teaching fellow. But we had heard, I guess, that each other might be in India. So, um, yeah, so we met. There were very few Westerners then. I mean, there'd been the British Raj, and then there was a big gap, and then there right. was us, and so. Um, we met on the street, and she told me about this course. And it was her first time also. She had been doing some meditation kind of by herself in America. But mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, we were, uh, we were roommates. We mm. didn't really have a room. Mm. But um, <laughs> for the first course, and we've been really good friends ever since. You know, uh, you, um, in something you wrote about that time, you, you, you say— um, you know that you you had this, you you had this discovery, this experience. Um, well, just let, say say a little bit though. I mean, I think you know. I think you did say this a minute ago. But what you what you got discovered? Um, well, you know, let me just let me just I would ask you. You know, how how would you how would you talk about the dis- what you discovered in that experience of a serious introduction mm-hmm. to contemplation to meditation? Well, First, you know it's hard to talk about. It, I know, so. yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but, well, the m- most basic thing that I could look inside myself for and learn about the nature of the mind and the nature of the world, and that I was a literature student. I had read, you know, a thousand books probably, and I was mm-hmm. always looking outside for more ideas and you know, more critical understanding and more content. We didn't call it content then. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We called it literature. Right. (laughs) And and so just looking within was really stunning. Um, And then uh, we 
that first course was from five in the morning till ten at night. We just sat and meditated. We that we had guidance and teaching, mm-hmm. but and um, little by little, you know, I started getting really quiet and still. Uh, of course, all kinds of things came up, but I really began to see that I was not my mind. I was not my body. I was those things, but I was also awareness. I could rest in awareness of my mind, of the sensations in my body. And as I began to see that, things just loosened up. And I I began to see the basic nature of the impermanence of thoughts as they rise and fall away. And I just started taking them less seriously. <laughs> I, <laughs> right, right. I began to see, for example, I was, I'd been trying to write my dissertation on poetry. And you know, uh, after weeks of doing this practice, I just, I had this insight into, I was sitting there and my mind had gotten so focused. And I began to see that, you know, the power of words in poetry are that they have that they're that they're very focused and that they are full of of potential. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seemed obvious to me, um, as did many things. As I sat for long enough, mm-hmm. it was um, it was really wonderful. I felt much less dependent on. Finding things outside, hmm. and it gave me a kind of radical self-confidence, like I belonged here on the planet, and <laughs> you know, and that uh, I would be able to uh, understand the basics of how it's all unfolding. I, th- I would say that it also gave me kind of faith in the unfolding. Hmm. I like that you hmm. use the word sane faith. That's what it felt like. It felt like I. I had a faith in actually the way things are mm, mm. and that that was okay. I mean, I also, you know, I hear you saying, a minute ago you said you you had a new insight into the mind, into your mind and into the world. And, and that's, you know, those two things belong together, but I feel like in your thinking and in the work you've done bringing... Um, contemplative practice back out to others. You, you've you've had a very focused way of attending to the the intersection between those two things. And like, there's this wonderful line you wrote um, when you were writing about those early years. You said a line I had heard Gary Snyder say while I was in graduate school came back to me: "The mercy of the West has been social revolution. Mm-hmm. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self." slash void. We need both. And you you continued, when I was first sitting in that Buddhist monastery in India, the merging of the two began to seem important for our future. Hmm. It seems to me that, you know, the world that has, let's use your word, unfolded in these 40, 50 years, you know, a, a, lot of, a, a big dynamic in it is this, these two strains of yeah. inner life and outer action kind of 
finding each other fitfully. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, you well, were you were really part of. Um, you were all. You were also not. You know, unwittingly. I know none of you when you and Sharon ran into each other in the streets of Delhi, and didn't really have a room, you know, to stay in. You didn't realize that you were going to be part of this movement that brought, um, you know, you and a lot of other mostly Jewish and some Christian kids, um, then kind of really importing Buddhism back into the West. It yeah. must be pretty amazing to think back on it now. This that one. It is. I mean, when we first came back, I mean, <laughs> the idea. I mean, we were so marginalized. Such, um, to put it mildly, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, we didn't quite know what to do with it. But many of us were really profoundly affected by it, and felt that in some way or other, we wanted to. Well, first integrate it into our own lives fully, and then share it with others. And so, but a number of the people who were I was with then and came back were, well, most of them were single and um, came back and wanted to um, teach, and uh, so began meditation centers. Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and. Um, Jack Cornfield wasn't with us in India. He was in Thailand when we were mm-hmm. in India, but we all met when we got back. And and a number of other uh, Buddhist teachers were there also, but who became Buddhist teachers. Right, right. But I, um, when I came back, I, so I was going to stay for two weeks, and I stayed for two years in India. And I was with, I did much more practice with Goanka, who was our teacher there, and with Tibetan teachers. And then I also had a Hindu teacher who was Ram Dass's teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, and I stayed with him for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so when I came back two years later, I was um, pregnant and married and uh, had a child then. And um, so I couldn't when we first came back, meditation, we still had the model of it being monastic. Mm. And so we, mm. having a child and being a meditation teacher was just no one could imagine <laughs> that. So, right. Uh, <laughs> so I had – but I was just as committed as everybody else uh, to finding a way to bring this into um, our lives in the West. So I – decided to find ways to bring it into first um, I started a business with my then husband John Bush and right was this um, the illuminations um, yeah, yeah yeah we started out doing silk screen uh, icons mandalas of we we tried to think of what was the um, central image central iconic image of every spiritual and religious tradition. And we came up with the mandala. And so we did, we silk screened these images, everything from the the rose window at Chart to yeah. um, uh, Tibetan and uh, Hindu mandalas and lots of things, lots of something for every tradition. And uh, we still screen them on plastic and people put them on the back of their car windows and are on their house windows and they became uh, 
These rainbow a, a dick big holes, thing. right? Or, then we did rainbows, yeah. And okay, were, and the rainbows are... <laughs> oh, I see. And the rainbows are one of the ones I think became iconic, right? The, yeah, they it, did. Every they, they, VW they bug had leap. one in the... <laughs> yeah, they made the leap out of the new age. <laughs> and uh, we at first, we didn't think we should sell them. We were just testing the colors of our inks. Yeah. We said, how should we test colors? Well, uh, what could we silkscreen that would have all the colors in it? And then it was like, oh, yeah, the rainbow. And then we thought, this isn't very spiritual. We can't mm. sell this. Mm. <laughs> and then, of course, we realized that it was the universal symbol of peace and harmony right out of the Bible. So um, we did, and yeah, and it just we we were and you became a successful businesswoman. We, you were really? an entrepreneur. There's even that article about you with Steve Jobs on the other side, yeah, who that at funny? that point was still a very no, yeah. noble and notable entrepreneur, but he'd just been ousted from Apple and he was starting a new company. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I don't know who wrote that or edited that article, but I yeah. thought when they look back, they must have thought. I didn't get this quite right. <laughs> you know, it's like, here are a few New Age entrepreneurs here by <laughs> Steve Jobs. Right. That <laughs> was great. But, um, but what I was most interested in, in um, at Illuminations, was integrating this sense, not just practice, because not everybody who worked there wanted to learn to meditate. But we integrated it in ways into the business that um, I thought would um, – so the business would embody the perspective and the spirit and the values of contemplative practices. Mm-hmm. So, um, And it we, seems to me that you always had this um, – you've pulled this through in your career, this connection between contemplation and the arts and design – yeah, um, and I and I guess actually what you just pointed out is also how that connection is really there in all the traditions, um, as well as a co- contemplative tradition. But that's that's interesting. It's not something people talk yeah, about a lot. Yeah, it was a way to express that. Um, you know, that was the beginning of the time when we were discovering. You know, it's all one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, now we recognize that it's it's more complicated and subtle and so on and it is all one and yet it's it's more than that but at the time that was radical yeah so we really wanted to express it and we knew that doing it um visually would be easier for people than trying to do it in words as you can (laughs) appreciate yeah um so yeah so we um at illuminations we did we were we were trying to create an organization based on principles of what they call in in the east right livelihood yeah. where what you're making is wholesome and contributes to now we would say you know sustainability of the planet and the right. species and um and at the same time the way in which you're doing it is helping um everyone who's involved to wake up and um so we interestingly we did so many things that um when i many years later arrived at google because they wanted to have a program there where their engineers could learn meditation um 
so many of the same things that they've recognized about what makes a person um, more creative, more more able to um, uh, bring their their whole self in into work and to be able to um, grow. Uh, from their work as well and not think of it as, you know, now I'll do my work and then I'll go home and be a real person. Um, right. Right. So. Right. right. But that, that has, that is, a, that is a shift that is still, uh, still has a long way to go. Oh, for sure. In terms of American corporate culture and ideals and, and practicalities. Yeah. But it's, it is something you've been, I mean, there, there is a shift. The shift has been happening, um, and you've been part of that. Yeah. The story of Search Inside Yourself, um, f- first of all, I, 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 I love the story of how you, when you, that you had to find that language, I mean, isn't it right yeah. that when you first started, when maybe you were invited to think about something, but when you first just were offering a meditation course or a mindfulness course, it didn't take? Yeah. Uh, actually, I was, excuse me, my friend Meng, who's now written the book on Search Inside Yourself, um, he wanted to bring meditation. He's a jolly into, good fellow. Is that his title? Yes, he yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he he called me up one yeah. day. I was at the still running the Center for Contemplative Mind, and he called up and he said, "Someone told me that you might be able to help me. I wanted to bring meditation into Google." He said, well, first of all, he said, when I was younger, he'd he'd been through some difficult." Um, Times and meditation had really helped him. So uh, he'd been thinking for some time at Google that uh, it would be really great to bring into the workplace. He'd been there since almost the beginning. He was engineer number 107. <laughs> and, um, and then he said to me on the phone, I, I thought this was funny because I didn't know anyone actually talked this way, but he said, so I told myself that when I got rich, I would spend my time bringing meditation into the play. I, said, <laughs> right. I haven't heard anyone say that till, since I was like seven. Right, you know, when right. I grow up and I get rich. Right. So anyhow, I said, well, did you? And he said, yeah, I did. So yeah. That was, since then, I've spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and I, I realize a lot of people say that out there. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, when Google went public, they told um, their – engineers that who no longer needed to work if they didn't want to, um, that they could stay, but they had to do something that uh, would in some way uh, advance Google's mission. But they could decide what it was. So Meng decided it was going to be bringing meditation. And he called me and he said, I've, um, so I was going to do this and I found somebody who was teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's the um, program that started with John Kevinson at the University of Massachusetts. And um, I posted it. And at Google, there's lots of offerings posted, and you can do all kinds of things. And uh, he said, I posted it, and nobody signed up. Mm -hmm. What's I don't know what to do. And I heard you could help. So I went out there, and we talked, and we looked around. And... um, 
it what we identified was that people uh, employees there are uh, all quite young, very smart, graduated at the top of their class from MIT or Stanford, um, had uh, had been in front of their screens most of their lives because they are so young. They they've from early on they've been they're really good at writing algorithms, but they weren't so good at um, self-awareness and awareness of others, um, emotional intelligence, essentially, because yeah. they've been just really working, studying, right. being, you know, top of their class. Yeah. Um, and then they got to Google and they went right to work and they're really good. But they also have to work in teams and um, they have to work together in many different ways. It's also uh, – there are also um, a lot of uh, cultural differences there. I would say – I don't know the real numbers, but it feels like it's about a third Indian, a third Chinese, and a third – a mix of everybody else. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there are a lot of misunderstandings. Um, in communication uh, because of all those cultural differences. So um, after talking for a whole day and figuring out what was going on there, I suggested that we could offer the same practices but emphasize the practices that are um, that more directly cultivate emotional intelligence and that we could frame it in a different way. Um, and so we called it um, of course, uh, they came up with this great name since they're the big search engine, mm-hmm. Search Inside Yourself. And then the subtitle was Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And we asked Danny Goleman, who also was in Bodh Gaya with us back all those years right, ago, right. Um, asked him to uh, uh, give a talk at Google about the relation between – about why emotional intelligence is so important in the workplace and – uh, the relationship between meditation and emotional intelligence. He did that, and then we posted the course, and in four hours, 140 people signed up. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, over 2,000 Googlers around the world have taken the course. And and it's a it's um, it, it there's a lot of talk now about bringing mindfulness into the workplace and yeah. how superficial it is and how it helps bad people do bad things better and and it doesn't help people question um, anything. It just makes them uh, more satisfied with what they're doing. Um, but this is a serious course mm-hmm. and uh, I have seen um, – that it goes beyond people. Of course, the first, um, when you sit down and quiet down, become calm, quiet, stable, you have to do that in order for any kind of um, insight to arise. And it does, you do feel better usually, although sometimes, you know, really disturbing emotions arise. Mm-hmm. But, um, but so it needs to be taken to the next kind of level of depth in order for people to begin to um, question, right. inquire. And, uh, but this course actually offers enough time, practice, and uh, teaching to help people do that. 
I mean, yeah, and I th- I think that's a I think that's an important and refreshing thing to name that yes, you can be a great meditator and also remain narcissistic, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, this this can be superficial and it can be abused like any like any spiritual practice, like yeah. any political yep. practice. Um, but you know, Mirabai, something that really so intrigues me in um, in your work is and in, in, in some of your writing is how you. You know, the, like the language of emotional intelligence that you've just been using and that's now so widely familiar, including in workplaces, um, that, that, that what this tradition um, is bringing forward and bringing to the surface for modern people has these, um, you know, has this very noble lineage um, you know, it's Buddhism that is the tradition that has focused on this for thousands of years. But, you know, when you also did the work before your corporate work, um, and I want to talk some more about that in a minute, but I also just want to pull back to this big picture. I mean, when you did the contemplative mind in society, when you helped um, helped bring mindfulness practices and and virtues into higher education across disciplines. Mm-hmm. You know, you wrote about how in 1890, William James in The Principles of Psychology said that the faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment, character, and will. And yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he was Buddhist, but, but that is, that is, the, that is the, the, the intention, right? Of Yeah, that is the intention. And that's just quite amazing. And then in the 70s, you had uh, somebody who actually I had never heard of, David McClelland yeah. in William James Hall, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> who became a teacher to all these figures who've gone on, especially in neuroscience, to open yeah, up this field. Yeah. Richie Davidson, Daniel Goleman, Cliff Saron, Mark Epstein. And also to me, what's fascinating is that he was Quaker. And there's, mm-hmm. there's something in your work, there's this thread you've pulled through um, in seeing that this contemplative impulse um, is a is a kind of human, it, it's a human tradition as much as it's yeah. it's in the religious traditions, um, in Mies van der Rohe and C.S. Lewis and the idea of beholding that goes back to Plato mm-hmm. and Heidegger. Somehow that you're just looking at your work has brought all that forward for me, and it's really Chrissy. Really you read so much. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> but yeah, but but it's true. Uh, that's but actually, I'm, at the center, when we started the Center for Contemplative Mind, we uh, were looking t- for ways in which these practices might be helpful in sectors of American society other than health and healing, which is where it had started. Right. Um, and um, we interviewed. 80 people we identified. This is in 96 and 7, so it was early. But we kind of word of mouth heard and knew a number of people in different fields who were beginning to integrate it into their work or their organizations. And we interviewed 80 people, and we asked them for what practices they were theirs and that they were teaching. Or And um, we gathered these maybe... I don't know, 100 practices from all the different traditions. It, I mean, all the religious and spiritual and, of course, psychological traditions too. 
it, they are human practices. They're really about um, waking up to who we are, appreciating who we are, opening our hearts, recognizing compassion, recognizing that you know there's a way in which there's much that we all share, even with all of our differences, and that waking up to that is a uh, can happen through these practices. So we created what we call the Tree of Contemplative Practices it's on the website. Yeah, no, I actually um, have that in front of me. Yeah, that. Yeah, and and, um, and just put all the pra- sort of sorted out the practices and put them on there, and I would say more than anything else we've done over all these years that has made such an impact it's kind of like going back to the mandalas we did at illuminations Mm -hmm. people love to know that this basic human that there is at the core of our being something that we all share and um that we're all you know the buddha say every every being wants to be happy you know, um, everybody wants to wake up and become more fully who they are. And these practices have been developed over thousands of years. Yeah. And really, mindfulness exists in almost every tradition, but it's not called mindfulness. But, you know, there is a calming, quieting, centering uh, practice that leads into insight in Every tradition. Yeah, I mean, we'll I, we'll put this tree of contemplative practices online. But you know, I just I just want to read you know some of them. First of all, there are the different branches. There's stillness. There's generative. There's creative. Activist. Relational. Movement. Ritual. Cyclical. And it's everything from centering to meditation to visualization, lexio divina, music, contemplative arts, journaling, um, social justice, work, and volunteering vigils. Bearing witness, deep listening, storytelling, labyrinth, yoga, uh, tai, uh, tai Chi, retreats, ceremonies, and rituals. It's so, it opens up the whole, um, it, it opens up this, the, yeah. you know, it, ta- it, takes, it, it takes the idea of, of uh, con- contemplative. Uh, practice and awakening out of a, a box, out of any kind of narrow box. Yeah. When we when we would share the tree or start talking about the practices with all kinds of different people, and, um, almost always someone would say, oh, I have, I have a contemplative practice in mm. my life, you know? Yeah. I walk silently in the woods on Saturday mornings, you know, or... Um, whatever it was. Um, so it, um, yeah, the tree helped people discover that and feel that it wasn't a an esoteric or foreign thing. And so then would be more open to exploring some of the other practices. Yeah. yeah and I, I actually do want to say that I'm a big one for not... Um, not needing to rush to say, oh, we're all the same after all, you know? I mean, that, the, yeah. that and you know, you, what you discovered in India and have built on, uh, you know, has incredible depth to it and a lineage and teachers and, and development over years. So, but I, I, don't, I don't think that honoring that exists in a tension with the fact that there's also something uh, 
something that's that that there are reflections and mirrors and echoes of this across the traditions. It seems to me that's what you've been kind of calling out to and yeah, yeah, opening up for people. Um, so let's ta- let's talk about where like the rubber meets the road. Then <laughs> let's get back down to the granular, gritty level. Well, like so, I want to talk about the stuff, the work you do, the stuff you do, do in workplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is Google, but it's 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 other places as well. And you know, it is true of us twenty first century people that where we. Where we work is in very large part where we spend our lives um, for many yeah. of us. Um, so, you know, one of the things you've talked about is well, just talk about some of a few of the um, the I don't know what you would call them the exercises or the practices that you can take people through that bring this knowledge down to earth in terms of working mm. life. Yeah. Um, well, I think one really powerful exercise at work or anywhere is um, what we call mindful listening. Some people call it deep listening. And I actually first learned it from some with from two lawyers who were mediators. So and it's sometimes used in therapy also, but um yeah. but we but we don't use it nearly enough. And which is just um we do it as a as a um practice together when it's taught, but you can it can be modified so that you can uh, listen this way even when you're at a meeting or just with another person. And in the practice, um, two people sit opposite each other and um, we ask the person who's listening to um, listen as if they first learn some mindfulness meditation practice, which is s- simply uh, closing your eyes, noticing your breath, noticing your breath moving in and out. And as thoughts and emotions arise, you just let them go and bring your mind back to your breath. That's the essence of it. So in mindful listening, we ask people to bring their mind fully to the person opposite them who is speaking. We'll give the speaker a simple prompt and they'll just start talking about something. And we ask the listener to listen fully and as thoughts and emotions and distractions arise in their minds or even helpful like, oh, I went through that too and I would like to tell you about it. All of that as it arises in the mind, we ask them to just let it go and come back to the person in front of them. And of course that happens if they're speaking for five minutes, if person's speaking for five minutes, that happens in the listener's mind 50 times. Right, right. Um, and then they just keep coming back and listening. And then they feed back, then they stop, and feed back what I heard you saying was. And then the speaker says, well, that's almost right, but you kind of got it 
little off. So uh, then they talk until the speaker feels heard, and then they switch roles. But uh, almost every time uh, people say both, I have never really listened like that. I'm just always listening as much to my own mind as to the person who's speaking. And not that it's good things might not arise in your mind, mm-hmm. but in as much as they keep you from listening to the other person, they're a distraction. And people also say, I never felt so listened to and so heard, and it really made me want to speak the truth as best I could. So that um, that practice is great for the workplace. And if you don't have an opportunity to do it with another person, if you're not like part of a little workshop or mm-hmm. something, um, then uh, you can do it yourself, of course, as you're listening to another person. Um, oh, right. You, you can just of course, make it your own discipline. You are the penultimate listener, right. so right. you know this. But, but most of us don't uh, we, we don't um, respect listening as a practice. It's just yeah. kind of happening to us. So um, that's a good one for the workplace. So, you know, you did, um, years ago, you did really extensive work with top executives at Monsanto, which was, I mean, a few generations mm-hmm. ago in Monsanto's life. But, I mean, you did like multiple day silent retreats, right, with the entire yes. executive. <laughs> and so I just want to ask you about something you said, um, wrote about the most notable change in the largest group, which included scientists and some of the foundation team, was a shift from cynicism to hope. Um, and obvi- that's obviously, that's maybe the kind of exercise you're describing, but it was a real immersion in, in a kind of contemplative practice and becoming mindful. So, but I, that is such an intriguing statement. So what is it about this practice that instills hope? I, now, the, as you said, that those were retreats. They were yeah. three-day silent retreats yeah. where they were, you know, meditating, both doing mindfulness practice and also a loving-kindness practice for all mm. beings mm-hmm. and compassion practices of uh, where you recognize that the other other persons are just like me. They have a body and mind just like me. They make mistakes and 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 feel pain and uh, and want to be happy just like me. It's more expanded. but So there are a number of practices, but um, I think what happens or and what I notice in those early retreats is that people experience more spaciousness in their minds when they gave themselves the opportunity, they're breathing in and breathing out and letting go of all their lists of things to do, that there was an opening that made them feel like things don't have to go exactly the way, uh, you know, at this moment we've planned that they go. It's much bigger than that. And um, there's, uh, we are in touch with our creativity, um, that things can change. So another thing, as you watch your mind constantly changing, you know, rising and falling away, you, you begin to understand that the nature of life is change. Everything is changing all the time. 
And so those things about their work that feel really stuck, that this also can change. So there's always hope that for something uh, mm, mm. better or different uh, if you know that everything's changing, even when it feels like it's really You start to not. trust um, and be able to imagine and trust in possibility. Even, even, and yes, even if it's yes. something you can't define, it's that that possibility is there, and you believe in it. Yes, yes. Huh. Now it's hard to it's so hard to say all this and use it with the example of Monsanto just before they got into um, right. You know, but the truth is that they, I don't know. It's hard to even talk about. But they really did believe at that very beginning point that they were going. They had studied the population statistics, and they saw that, you know, that there, if everything went the way it was going, that there wasn't going to be enough food for the planet for the 21st century. And they saw a way in which they could increase yields, and it would still be good business, and mm -hmm. it looked really good to them, and. Um, they went ahead with it, but many other things happened in between. Um, so, you know, it keeps changing. And so we have to keep practicing mm -hmm. because you have to, in every moment, you have to, you know, be awake to what the, you know, to what the right choices are in that moment. And you, you've also worked, I think, with... Um with social activists. I mean, this is just, I mean, these are just yeah, people who work in other yeah. spheres, right? I mean, <laughs> environmental yeah. activists are leaders of environmental organizations. And again, there it seems that what you find is that, um, and this was an interesting one, that, you know, an environmental leader who found that he became less overwhelmed by climate change predictions. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I mean, that is a big theme for professors of environmental science mm -hmm. uh, in schools across the country. There's one, one professor said his students call him Dr. Doom yeah. because he only has bad news. But, and it, that was kind of a joke, but it was also true that his students weren't able to, they weren't able to hold it. It was too much. And... Um, they uh, felt like they weren't going to be able to do anything about it. And so they, they held it at a real distance and couldn't really open themselves up to trying to figure out in what way things could change. And um, he, he and, and many others have found that um, by doing a range of contemplative practices uh, in the classroom with these students that they're much better able to take it in and uh, not be so terrified right, that and be they close down to it. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, Mirabai, we're all, as far as, as far as the climate goes or the weather or, you know, whatever we want to call it, whatever language you want to use, I, I think we all... We are kind of collectively waking up to the fact that, uh, you know, the things we've taken for granted about the natural world, let's just say it yeah. that way. You know, I think maybe everyone would agree um, on that. Uh, but it's so true for all of us that, you know, this, you know, and this language you use about, about mindfulness is, 
allows you to be present to suffering and not overwhelmed by it, to bear witness to suffering and not take it on. I mean, I think that is a challenge for everybody who watches the news yeah. at night. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with, well, I just remembered this year I taught, um, this year the freshmen at Amherst College had, they all had to choose a three-day orientation and um, in their first week at school. And out of 400 entering students, 70 chose meditation and yoga. Huh. So there's a big change. Yeah. So um, I taught it with a friend who taught the yoga. And the first day, you know, I was teaching them mindfulness um, and having them, you know, watch their breath, which they had just arrived on campus. They were, and they had, like, worked like fiends, you know, to be able to get to into get Amherst. To get in These, to arrive on campus, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, 400 were chosen out of 8,000. So, um, you know, you can imagine what their high school careers were like. So they got there, and they thought that <laughs> mindfulness would be helpful, but, you know, it was really hard for them to slow down. <laughs> So right. the <laughs> beginning, and also, you know, they're all just kind of feeling out their uh, who they are and, you know, what their look is. And so <laughs> um, I had just taught um, uh, college faculty the, the, basically the same thing. And, of course, college faculty like to talk all the time. That's what they do. <laughs> so um, I left a lot of space for I'd say, oh, I'd teach the practice, and then I'd say, so, any reflections on that? Any questions? And there'd be dead silence. Oh. So, <laughs> okay, we'll practice a little more. And then I'd ask again, and nobody would make themselves vulnerable enough to ask a question. Right, right. So I decided, oh, better change this around. So I um, decided to give them a practice of the next morning, or the practice of mindfulness of an object. And I gave them each a leaf. And um, they were to bring their awareness to the leaf, and then as, as um, distractions arose, let them go and bring your mind back to your leaf. So I, we did that for five or ten minutes, which is a long time to look. Mm-hmm. You know, usually you look at a leaf and you say, oh, okay, I saw it, and then you put <laughs> right. it down. But the way in which, you know, generations ago or, or hundreds of years ago, people were more easily with nature, um, with indigenous people, you know, they'd really be there with it. Yeah. And so their minds... I, I asked them to bring their minds back over and over. So then, but I, and I didn't really expect that anybody was going to say anything. But, um, so I left a couple of moments at the end and nobody did. And then this one football player in the back row raised his hand. And he was, he had become in my mind the person who most was kind of resisting. Right doing anything, making himself vulnerable in any way. He said, can I say something? I said, definitely. He said, I love my leaf. Oh. <laughs> oh. It was so beautiful. Yeah. And then they all started talking about how, you know, they, what it was like to really look and look and look. 
And it just made me realize that, you know, it's so much easier to to do the things that we've done. Um, what, um, what I know that some uh, Christian groups call crimes against creation. Hmm. You know, um, when we're so out of touch with nature and um, so... Hmm. Anyhow, it's just a moment of, of that one moment, like is kind of this window into what we need to remember in order to make the right decisions for the future. It, it also, um, you know, sometimes I, th- I feel like we, we've hit the 21st century, and I, I think of this as kind of spiritual technology, right? Meditation, mindfulness, and contemplation. And, yeah, uh, yeah. It's almost like we like we're discovering all these other technologies and then we're kind of waking up to this spiritual technology that we kind of just need to bring yeah. us back to our senses almost. I mean, I wonder a lot about I've just become aware recently of, of how you know, whenever you stand in line these days, um or do anything that involves waiting. Yeah. Um we're all on our phones immediately. We're never alone and we're never you know, we're always we're always engaged with our phones. Yeah. And I'm I'm kind of starting to wonder like what what did we used to do? Yeah. Right? Did we I mean I don't know if you're talking about looking at a leaf, but I mean did we look around and I mean I know there was boredom. I don't I don't ha- there's no romance attached to this, but somehow we survived and flourished and it just <laughs> makes me wonder what was happening in our minds or inwardly then or even in terms of our relationship to the world we were standing in. Yeah. That we're n- that is completely gone now. Daydreaming, hmm. which research has found that daydreaming is good for your brain. Um, I don't think we do as much of that. I, I, when <laughs> teaching these students also, we at the end of the day, we did the, the yoga and, and a deep relaxation. And, um, of course, they weren't allowed to use their phones during the day. Mm-hmm. But so I did Shavasana, deep relaxation, and everyone who's ever done a yoga class, you know, knows that's like, okay, this is the time, you know, you completely let go and you drop into the floor, you know. And, um, as soon as like breathing in and breathing out, about three breaths in, and I saw these arms reach out. <laughs> They went for their phones and brought lying down on right. the floor. Right. They brought their phones in front of their faces. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was like the little Catholic girl in me thought it was so sacrilegious. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Well, but okay, so and you did all that beautiful work with Google and Google is part of the problem here. I right? yeah. to, to the point that nothing is pure. And um but you've also written about um very practical, like mindfulness practices, like social media practice, mindful emailing. Would you talk about that? Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, we devised that at Google, and Oprah <laughs> loved that. She put it in her magazine. Okay. Um, it's. Re- I mean, it's so simple, but like most mindfulness practices, <laughs> we don't. It's so simple, and we don't do it. Um, you just. Uh, type out your email, either a response or an initiating email, and then you stop, take three deep breaths, follow your breath, 
in and out and in and out and in and out and then you read the email and you read mm-hmm. it from the perspective of the person who is going to receive it and there we were focused on emotional impact so you know is the person going to is this is this likely to um make is this person likely to be you know agitated or angry or um you know frustrated or whatever the emotion would be negative emotion um or maybe even is this person uh likely to think you uh, mean you're offering more than you actually are what whatever right. we um ask them to think about it from that person's perspective and then either you know change it or not and and then send and the first time we we did it we were there was a week in between the the uh, classes and so a week later they came back and we said how did it go and um they all said that was radical you know it was like yeah. amazing yeah. and then one guy said i did something i did something really radical i said what he said I picked up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, you know, I mean, there, we all are emailing to the people in the next cubicle, you know. And so uh, that's really helpful, really helpful. Hmm. I wanted to go back for a minute because I didn't answer your question about social justice activism, really. I got off on the leaf. But uh, I just want one theme that comes up so often with activists is um, that if I give up my anger, uh, will I lose my motivation? Right. And uh, it's my anger that keeps me working for this change. Yeah. And what, um, what mindfulness, compassion practices, and others help with is the understanding that it's not either acting out on your anger and being driven by it on the one hand or repressing it on the other hand, but there is a way to um, notice your anger, notice, begin by noticing the sensations in your body, and then notice what your anger is, see it, and recognize it as energy, energy in your body, right. but... Um, at the same time, hold uh, compassion and equanimity for the situation and be able to, because you're more likely to be able to see what can be done to make that change if you're not driven by anger, because it clouds the mind. And, um, and it also makes communication with people on the other side of an issue really difficult. Yeah. Um, Whereas if you can, if you can um, be, if you can cultivate equanimity and compassion for the situation, you're much more likely to both see uh, interesting ways to resolve it uh, and to be able to act on it and communicate it. Lawyers, we did a lot of work with lawyers and judges and yeah, that's, law students. I was, I was reading about that. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. It was so interesting. I mean, a special retreat for judges where they wanted to learn how to be non-judgmental. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, we, we laugh, but it's, yeah. you know, it, 
it's um, they well lawyers worry that if can they be a zealous advocate for their client and at the same time have compassion for the person on the other side of the case? Mm. And, um, of course, the answer is yes, but one has to cultivate deep compassion and equanimity in order to do that. And, again, in fact, you're more likely to win because you're more likely to see uh, the whole thing without judgment. And what that means and what those judges meant is not it's not eliminating wise discernment it's eliminating prejudgment so that they judges are unbelievably overworked may it may it change if they change some of these you know victimless drug laws mm-hmm. but they have so many people coming in front of them all day long, one after another. And they said, you know, some young guy comes up in front of me, and before I you know, even know his name, I'm already thinking you know, that this is probably who he is and what he's done. Right. And they can't not have that arise because there they are all day long hearing all this stuff. But they don't want to. They don't want to prejudge. They want to be really there in the moment, clear and open-minded with whomever comes before them. But it's really hard. So, um, mindfulness of like being in the moment, letting go of of prejudgments, uh, just being there and really listening to what's actually being said. Um, that can be cultivated through mindfulness practice, and. Mm-hmm. They yeah. loved it. Mm. Yeah, I just I just read in a, a science magazine that the present moment, as we experience it, is about two to three seconds long. <laughs> kind of interesting, right? Like yeah. the physically, like what we experience as the present moment is too. I know. I mean, some philosophers say there is no present moment. There's right. only the past and the future. That this moment, you know. But I think, like physiologically, we now see that it's true that there is the present moment, and also that you can that you can that it can feel longer, right? Which is also something meditators have said. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And that you can also completely not be there. (laughs) You can just miss it. (laughs) All of the above. Yeah. (laughs) Mm. Um. You know, you said a minute ago, like with like with everything with with. mindfulness um, and contemplative practice uh, it's so obvious and in some ways easy but we don't do it and uh, you know I have to and I have to say like for myself I have um, I've had many experiences across the years uh, in different settings retreat settings or you know something less intense where where I mean the irony is that even a kind of one-off contemplative experience can be instantaneously gratifying, right? I mean, it it, it can be yeah. it can be just transformative, um, and yet, uh, and now there's even all this science about how good it is for us on these very basic yeah. biological levels and stress and all of that, but it's very hard to create this habit, and I. It has been hard for me. Um, I I have recently. I wanted to ask you about this since I have you. You know, I recently decided that I could do six minutes in the morning while my tea steeps. 
which just seems so petty, you know, p- pathetic. But, but it's, yeah, it's been, as you said, it's, it's outside time. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I wonder, um, it seems to me that this matter of what practices you use or, you know, what habits you take on, how long and where and what style, um, we have all these different personalities and all these different lives. And yeah. I mean, is it, is, I want to ask you, because you work with so many different practices. I mean, are there, is this something where you really do have to find the way that works for you? Yeah. And, well, at the center, we, we've done all kinds of things. I mean, we've had retreats where we've offered, you know, we've had a Buddhist teacher and a, a Jewish teacher teaching traditional Jewish practices, Brother David teaching Christian practices, yeah. um, someone doing Sufi uh, chanting. We've done it that way. And so, and then invite people to find something from all of that that works for them. Sometimes we've um, simple. We've offered really simple practices like um, mindfulness of the breath and walking meditation right. and mindful listening and so on as an opening for people. And then knowing that if they begin to appreciate, they begin to appreciate the inner life and the benefit that comes from, as you said, I mean, it's amazing that they found the reduction in stress and cortisol levels yeah. after 10, 15 minutes of, of meditation, uh, that once people begin to experience that, that they will um, find what works for them. I, You know, in, in the work that I did all this year with um, Fetzer Institute, I... Um, they wanted to find practices that would work for their entire staff of 65 people. Right. And th- they have a wide range of, of, um, of skill sets. I mean, every, they're groundskeepers and kitchen people and, you know, program managers and financial right. people and so on. And, um, and they came from lots of different backgrounds. Um, and not just spiritual and religious backgrounds, but there are people there whose parents came from China and Afghanistan and Eritrea. And so we had to find practices that worked, that we had to find a program that would work for everyone. And basically what we did was we'd start each um, morning when we would uh, uh, do these practices um, with mindfulness, and and we invite people who, for whom mindfulness was even too much, uh, to just sit in silence or to sit in silence and do whatever um, they, uh, whatever uh, they did, which might be a prayer or right. some other form of meditation. So we do 15 minutes or so in silence with a light mindfulness being led. And then after that, we, on different days, we'd offer different practices. People could choose um, those practices or they could choose to experiment with those practices, including um, the arts and, and practices in nature and uh, 
all a whole range of things like the tree and um, or they could choose to just go to we had a quiet room where there were some uh, art supplies and some spiritual books or you could just sit there in silence or um, do whatever practice you wanted to do yourself but you just had to commit that time um, to be to be a reflective time not to be at your desk going through your to-do list Mm. and um it's been amazing. I mean, we've had to work in all kinds of ways to refine it and shift it and change it. But um, it's been really remarkable, the, um, the effect it's had on the whole community. So it's... Wait, keep going. What were you going to say? Yeah, yeah. Would uh, you talk a little bit The other bit thing of, I wanted yeah, to say on. is that there's so much work being done with mindfulness, and that is a great introductory practice. But... What I have found, uh, in the beginning, you couldn't ever say what uh, what the uh, environmental leaders would call the L word, and they didn't mean lesbian. They meant, <laughs> they meant they, the L word was love, and there are there are practices the most the most. Um, used is uh, the loving-kindness practice that Sharon Salzberg has really written a lot about. Um, But, and the compassion practices are related to that, in which which are more about appreciation for others and um, a desire to relieve the suffering of others. But that whole group of practices, the truth is, when I think back over all the um, moments, people of um, introducing these practices to all these different kinds of folks, that it's really when someone's heart opens that things really change. Mm. And you can't ever predict how that's going to happen. It doesn't always happen through doing loving-kindness practice. But... Um, I have been more and more willing to take the risk to offer those practices, even in just very secular working situations recently than mm-hmm. I used like to be. Loving, loving kindness meditation. Yeah, mm-hmm. because people really want to be loved, yeah. it turns out. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's hard to talk about it, and it, you know, it's it always edges on sounding like a Hallmark card, but um, but I have found it to be very powerful if you can find the right way uh, to do it. You've also been working with um, people in the army. Yeah, they want to be loved too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's well. Um, that taught me. I mean, for me, going through all this, the big thing has been just when I thought, you know, oh, I'm beyond thinking that they're, you know, in terms of self and other, you know, that's all us. Mm-hmm. And then I'm confronted with <laughs> another um, 
uh, invitation, like to the army. Mm -hmm. And um, I discovered that within me, it turned out I didn't think it was all us. I thought (laughs) that they were really different. But, um, and it's... And this is you who drove draft dodgers across the Canadian border (laughs) 50 years ago. Right, so anti-war. Yeah. But... um, but as they said to me, some of them at one point, Mirabai, the army doesn't take us to war. Civilians take us to war. We just follow orders. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> In that mm-hmm. moment, I realized, mm-hmm. of course. But, and it wasn't that I didn't know that. But, you know, I, I realized that all that whole domain was, was vague in my mind. And... Um, uh, Anyhow, it's a long story to talk about the yeah, army, but, but what I did discover is that yeah. that they really they they have been taught. The army's been really military's been really good at teaching people to um, go into a situation to to see what's going on in that situation, and then to use basically as much force as possible to eliminate any threat. And that um, now is counterproductive in almost every setting that they find themselves in. So I worked with them when they were, you know, mainly in Iraq and Afghanistan. And going into those villages, that was the last thing that they should be doing because, of course, I mean, apart from the moral and ethical issue, um, that it was counterproductive for them because then the whole village would turn against them. So they had to learn to um, go into a situation and and be aware of what was going on and then use force only as a last choice. Mm. And that, you know, it took deconditioning and it, ta- and it ta- took some real <laughs> real mindfulness, and in the process, it was really helping to, um, you know, to support life, yeah. save life, uh, their own and and the people in the communities. And so, I felt like it was a good thing to do. So we're almost out of time, really. Where so I just want to ask you one. Oh, we have a couple more minutes. Good, so I don't have to rush this too much. I mean, it sounds to me like as you've written about that that. Um, mean dealing with people who have been at war and are sending other people into war is kind of the extreme case of being present to suffering and not overwhelmed by it or bearing witness to suffering and not taking it on. Um, But again, you know, I'll say again, I, you know, as I was getting ready to interview you, I I think about you know, a lot of the anguishing things that are on many of our minds, um, the wars that are going on in the world. Um, also, the issues like income inequality, which I, I think so many of us are troubled yeah. by without having any idea what to do about it. Yeah. Um, or or race. Um, yeah. Again, what, you know, this huge question that feels kind of hopeless about how to, uh, what to, how to possibly make a difference. Um, um and I want to read back something you wrote about, you know, from your earliest days. You know, as un- you said, as unlikely as contemplative practice as a strategy for social change seemed to me when I arrived in India, it slowly began to look like a critical, com- critical component in the 
sorry, a critical component in the creation of a more just and compassionate global society. So I wonder if you just reflect here as we finish for a few minutes on, you know, in, in both um, lofty and practical ways about how, you know, what you've learned, like how can this kind of practice speak to those, that kind of anguish? I mean, um, yeah. yeah, contemplative practice as a strategy for social change. What does that look like? Well, I've thought we've all thought about race again a lot recently, and I mean, so much of what of what practice is about is making the what's going on in the mind available and obvious to us as with our awareness we are watching our minds and the i mean a lot of what's behind um the all the issues that have to do with race now yeah. um is this unconscious implicit bias Right. Which and, is a version of what those judges talked about, right? That they yeah, somebody comes and they have these ideas about whether they're guilty or innocent. It's not actually yeah. based on that person. I mean, um, and I mean, I think that I mean, partly it's be, and in part because of of the income and inequality. Um, there are lots of people's lives are separate from each other, and yeah. so they actually don't they don't have any friends in other races, and they don't know what their lives are like, and so they're stunned when they hear that you know that black men are you know held up more often on the street by by police yeah. than than white ones, but um, but for those uh, kind of in between who actually. Uh, and many of those people are in a position to uh, certainly make cultural and and political change. Um, a lot of it has to do with um, with biases that they're um, that are unconscious to them. That's a, a, certainly a big piece of it. Mm -hmm. It's going on in the universities, going on, and so I do think that contemplative practice can help there. I also think that, um, I mean, people have um, actually used uh, and introduced practices to police forces yeah. and um, uh, where they, uh, to begin to uh, appreciate others um, in the sense, recognizing the way in which Recognizing their own bias, and so as it arises when they uh, when they see a young black guy and and reaching for their gun immediately, will um, be more aware and be less likely to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, looking at their own fear, because I that seems to be a big factor. Um, uh, looking at fear instead of repressing it or just channeling it into aggression. All of these things can um, be helped by, um, by mindfulness practices. And, um, and then, as I said, I just think the practices that have to do with, um, with 
compassion and appreciation for each other. You know, if the more widely they can be practiced, the more likely we are to um, uh, to be more fair and just in our behaviors toward others. Um, but yeah, fear, dealing with fear is a lot because I think the more exposure we have to each other, the more that the less likely we are to objectify each other and then not care about right. or, or you know I'm not if, you, being, if you think no, if you think about um and I think I think that we we tend to hold up the 60s, and in fact, a lot of people who you knew um, or in these circles you moved in um, as kind of how we think social change happens, and it was about masses of people on the street um, or about very high high profile kind of personal transformation. Um, but none of that brought us far enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing about, you know, the idea that contemplative, that somehow developing powers of self-reflection um, can be powerful in any given life, I think seems obvious. But the link between that and, you know, real social change, gosh, it sounds like if nothing else, it would might take forever. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these things are, um, it's it, it doesn't happen in a linear way. And, you know, they're, as we, we've se- seen, I don't want to make a definitive statement about this, but we have seen leaps in terms of social change happen uh, at different times when a tipping point is reached mm-hmm. and where uh, someone from, uh, and I don't want to put too much emphasis on individual leaders now because it, I, I think it's less likely to happen that way in the future. But, you know, we did see the moment when Martin Luther King could right. speak right. Or, or Gandhi or Jesus or mm-hmm. Mohammed, mm-hmm. you know. Um, uh, and um, so it's not like every every single person has to be changed and then think. It's more mysterious than that, I think. Um, but... You know, I, as you ask, I realize I've been uh, working more with the strategy of working with people who are already committed to to change and helping them do it in a better way. Mm. So working with environmental leaders and working with, uh, you know, uh, activists of different kinds, working with um, with. Uh, a friend of mine who's who was the uh, he'd be a great interview, uh, George Mumford. He was the um, meditation teacher who taught the Lakers and the Bulls under uh, Phil Jackson right, when right, they were right. winning, and um, uh, he taught meditation to those teams. And um, he and I worked with this group of of um, uh, they of ex gang leaders ex-con, ex-gang leaders who were working on the streets of Chicago to um, uh, try to uh, stop the violence. And there's a great um, uh, documentary called The Interrupters made Mm. about them. Mm. And, um, but they, um, they were amazing. They've all been in prison. They've all killed people. Uh, they've all been heads of gangs. They came out and decided that they wanted to do it 
they wanted to stop the violence, that that wasn't the way. And it was that's part of a program that came out of a public health model once uh, I think the CDC identified a street violence as an infectious disease. Hmm. Um, so uh, anyhow, we went to Chicago and worked with these guys. They're almost all men, but a couple of women. And... Um, you know, they their job is to be on the street and lis- they listen for when a murder happens because it's almost all gang related. Right. And um, so when one gang kills a person in another gang, there's always retaliation. And one of their main roles was to get in between and stop the retaliation. And right. they do it by talking to people and telling their stories. And they'd been very effective. But as I said, we're on the we're on the street listening all the time. Right. No one ever listens to us. I mean, and it's endless. I mean, there's so much violence going on. They're all burned out. And they respond. It was amazing to me. These are the toughest guys you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And they responded so beautifully to just being given a way to calm down and feel safe feel safe with each other and tell their stories and just breathe in and out. And then we did the listening practice. Right, right. And they loved it. And they really listened to each other. And at the end, they just fell into each other's arms. It was really beautiful. And um, they then George continued to work with them. And they said that it really helped them do their work better. And so... um, that's that's one strategy of working with people who are already doing the good work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, other people will come up with other strategies. I, You know, I trust the power of these practices. I don't know about the timing, you know. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, the, the living through this winter, one wonders if— how much time we've we've got left right. before climate change takes over. <laughs> but <laughs> um, you know, I don't know, but I do know that it's one small part of uh, helping us try to figure out how to live together. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd want to say? Anything I haven't asked you? <laughs> anything you thought about and want to get out I'm starting to work on a book with my dear friend Ramdas who I've known since the days in India and um, he is well known to many people because he wrote the great manual on this whole domain called Be Here Now yeah. and uh, we've started writing a book on dying mm. so I'm thinking about that and how uh, just being able to hold the reality of death as we do, as we live our lives fully, is an important part of practice. Hmm. Not to end on a down note, (laughs) but it's a good thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Mirabai. Well, it's been delightful to be in your presence. Thank you so much. Thanks for driving all this way. Thank you. I love talking to you, and I hope we have many more conversations. Yeah, me too. All right. You take care and drive safely back. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye.